0: One of the first verses of the Bible I ever memorized was Proverbs 3 and 5. I have quoted it no doubt uh, you know, many, many times over the years. Uh, have usually written this in to the front of the Bible uh, to our graduates when we give them a Bible at the time of graduation. Uh, whenever I have uh, sent someone maybe a birthday card or an anniversary or whatever the case may be, oftentimes I would write in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5. I think it's probably the most important verse of instruction in the Bible from a practical perspective. Uh, Solomon wrote this. Uh, God gave him more wisdom than any man who's ever lived. But of course, we know he was just the human writer of this verse. We know that uh, Solomon wrote this by divine inspiration. And it was true when he wrote it. It's been true ever since. He says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Now, we have a path. The word path would indicate a way of life, our journey on this earth. And the Lord's people need to have that path directed by the Lord. We live in a very dark, confusing, deceptive world. Except the Lord lead us, except the Lord guide us, We can wind up in any place in in this world except where we need to be. But this verse here, if it's applied, will safely guide you through the storms of life. Now, this is not a hard verse to memorize. Some verses are, but this one's not. But it's a very difficult verse to apply continuously and constantly in life. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not to your own understanding. See, your own understanding is in total opposition to what I just said at the beginning of the verse. When you lean to your own understanding, you're no longer trusting in the Lord, period, much less with all of your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And then we have the results. And He shall direct our path. Now this is good information, advice, counsel. For people of any age, it doesn't matter if you're 5 or you're 50 or 25 or 75, it doesn't matter. It applies to us in all phases of life. It applies to us in all stages of life. Again, trust in the Lord. Now, people are going to trust in something, but everything outside the Lord will just be failure. That's what it boils down to. You ever heard somebody say, well, you just need to trust your instincts. You just need to trust your feelings. You just need to trust your heart. But Solomon said also in Proverbs 28 and 26, he that trusts in his heart is a fool. That's what God says in contradiction to what many people may have told you and tell God's people on a regular basis. That's just the opposite, isn't it? And that's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3 to let God be true and every man a liar. We're to try the words of men by the word of God. Knowing that God's word is true, has always been true, always will be true. But the words of men, oftentimes are very deceptive, they're very untrue. So he says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Now, I read over here in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, beginning in verse 5, where he says, cursed is the man that trusteth in man, who maketh his... Flesh, his arm, and his heart departs from the Lord. Now, this man is cursed. He said he should be like a heath in the desert. A heath is a, it was is a small, thorny, unattractive, unfruitful bush, basically useless. He says that's exactly how a man is that trusts in man that make his flesh his arm once again. Now. Oftentimes God gives us analogies. Oftentimes God gives us word pictures, and while it's always good to try to find some on your own, you will never exceed or find one any better than what God gives us. So here's the picture: a man that trusts in man is going to be like a useless, thorny, fruitless, unattractive bush. And when the heat, uh, when uh, he says, when good cometh, he knoweth it not. He cannot recognize good when it comes to his life. He will not benefit even from the natural rains that God gives us. It will always be that bush that I just described. Then he says he shall be like uh, parched places and also in a land inhabited uh, in a salt land or a land of salt. You know, salt will keep things from growing, won't it? If you put salt on your grass, it would kill it. I remember we used to make homemade ice cream. We hadn't done that in a long, long time. But we'd make homemade ice cream. And Mother would fix it up, you know, the, according to her recipe and everything. And, and then we'd put it, uh, you know, in the ice cream freezer. You used to turn it, and then they'd come along with the electric. But never did make it as good as a hand turn. But anyway, we'd make homemade ice cream. We'd pack ice all around it to freeze it. Then we'd put salt on the ice to melt the salt. And it'd take a while to make it, but boy, it sure was good. Now, after all said and done, that salty water had to be thrown away. And my dad always told me, he says, be sure you don't throw it on the grass. Go throw it on the weeds. Because if you threw it on the grass, it would kill the grass. It would just kill the grass. Now, there's a sea over there in in, uh, Palestine called the Dead Sea. It's called the Dead Sea because nothing lives in it. It's very, very salty. It is so salty, you can just float in the water. I've done it. Float in the water. You can't, you can't drown yourself because it is so salty and nothing lives in it. The Dead Sea also only has one place. It does not have an inlet and an outlet, just an inlet. It always receives and it never gives. It's a lesson in this. The Sea of Galilee, on the other hand, is a beautiful body of water. The Sea of Galilee receives water. It lets out water. Uh, It's filled with life. That's where the the apostles did all their fishing, of course. But the Dead Sea only receives. And in life, if you're just a receiver and not a giver, then you're not going to have a very good life. The Lord's people need to be receivers, but also givers. That's why Paul said to the elders of Ephesus, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's a blessing both ways. But the greater blessing is in the giving rather than the receiving, you see. But then he says, but blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord whose hope the Lord is. And we got the contrast here. Here's the picture. It says, he shall be like a tree planted by the waters whose roots spread out toward the rivers. They always planted trees where he could get plenty of water. It says his leaf shall, not, uh, shall always be green, and it says it shall continuously bring forth fruit. Now we got something totally opposite, do we not? We got a beautiful tree, we got a fruitful tree, in contrast to a useless tree, a fruitless tree, an unattractive tree. And the difference is one is trusting in man, and one is trusting in the Lord. In the 18th chapter of the book of Luke, two men go up to the temple to pray. Now, I want you to contrast these men with two men who went to the temple to pray in Acts chapter 3. In Acts 3, you got Peter and John go up to the temple to pray together. And they were together in every way that people ought to be together. They were together side by side. Uh, both of them was going to pray, and they were going to the right place to pray. They were going to the temple. When it says the Pharisee and the publican here went to pray, they were not together. Oh, they could close enough to see one another, but they were not together. The Pharisee wouldn't be caught dead, as they say, alongside this publican to begin with. But the Lord spake a parable unto those that trusted in themselves and despised other people. Now, the Pharisee's re- uh, prayer is recorded First. Now, I told you before, this prayer prayer is 34 words long. And you're going to find the word I in it mentioned five different times. He's talking to the Lord as if the Lord wasn't acquainted with him. He's talking to the Lord like the Lord needed to be informed, like the Lord didn't know who he was. He says, Lord, I, I thank you I'm not like other men, even this publican over here. Remember, he spoke this parable to those who trusted in themselves and despised others. And that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees prayed oftentimes simply to be heard and to be seen. And this, uh, this Pharisee here says, Lord, I thank you I'm not like other men. Well, that didn't impress the Lord any. But I'm thinking I'm like other men and despise or look down upon others, even this publican over here. And he says, now, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not an extortioner, and I'm not unjust. Well, that, that's good. Nobody should be those things, right? But he says, I fast twice in the week. Now, the law commanded the Jewish people to fast just once, not twice, but once. So he exceeded. He wants to let the Lord know I went beyond what was required, you see. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, that means right on down to the smallest thing, to the smallest herbs, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever you possess, you know, you were a tithe. He wants to make sure the Lord sees all this and knows all that. But the publican, standing afar off, smote himself on the breast and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now, his prayer contained seven words, just seven. But he really got to the heart of the matter, did he not? He got to the point. He says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now, the Pharisee didn't say anything about being a sinner. He didn't think he was a sinner. So there was no need to confess being a sinner, right? Yeah, he, he would have been insulted if someone had called him a sinner because he was depending upon his righteousness in the sight of God, on his works, etc. So here's two men, and they are together, but they're not together. The Bible says this man prayed thus with himself. That means he was praying apart from, the I think, the leadership of the Spirit of God. When I pray, I I hope the Lord will be with me when I pray, the Spirit of God being with me when I pray. And how many times have you said, you know, let us us pray together. Uh, We do that oftentimes in church, right? The opening prayer, the closing prayer. Let us pray together. While one person is maybe leading the prayer, the only one speaking, I trust all of us, as Brother Wayne prayed this morning, we together with Brother Wayne in prayer. I don't, I don't think Brother Wayne was praying with himself, see? And we also notice that the Pharisee prayed only for himself, only for himself. He mentioned no one else. No prayer, I believe, is acceptable in the sight of God that doesn't include other people, you know, considering other people rather than just considering our own self. But I think we should definitely pray for ourselves, but we should pray for others, our church members, our church family, uh, our, our natural family, our, our friends, and those that's come to our attention, whether we even know them or not by name, we are to pray for others. So here's a man uh, that trusted in himself. Now, over in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul tells this church, he said, I will not have you ignorant concerning the troubles that we was in in Asia. He said, "How we were pressed out of measure, despaired of life." Now, when Paul used these expressions, uh, he's talking about a person who's going through some real serious trials of life. And when you study the life of the apostle Paul, his trials and tribulations were many and various, of all kinds of categories: trials at sea, trials on the land, trials in the country, trials in the wilderness, trials in the city, uh, trials among his own countrymen, trials among the Jews. I mean, uh, there was hardly any category that Paul didn't experience trials and tribulations in. He said, but I didn't want you to, have, to be ignorant about this. But he says, but we had the sentence of death within ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God that raises the dead. Another think Paul is just simply saying here, Um, I experienced a death from the standpoint, based upon all his experiences of life, he knew that he stood in need of God's help totally and completely. And if he depended upon him, he would just be devoured. So he had the sentence of death within himself that he shouldn't trust in himself. He knew if he had in times past, he'd simply failed in it. The experience taught him that. God's Word taught him that. So we had to sense us to death within ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves. That's the that's natural inclination, isn't it? To trust in yourself. He said, but rather we are to trust in God, which hath delivered us from so great a death, death deliver, in whom we trust he will yet deliver. Now, God ultimately is going to deliver us from death. But if he does that, then he can deliver us from any trial, any tribulation, any affliction, any problem that we would experience here in life. So he says, we had the sense of death within ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God that raiseth the dead. (laughs) There's the one you should put your trust in. Trust in the Lord, the one that can raise the dead, the one who has raised the dead, the one who's promised to raise the dead. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not to your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy path. Do not trust in yourself. Do not trust within yourself. Do not trust in your works, your own righteousness, etc., etc. But always put your trust in the Lord. Now, I could go on to several other sources that the Bible teaches. Well, let's just go to one or two here. just thought of 1 Timothy 6.17. In First Timothy 6.17, Paul says charge those which are rich in this world, rich in this life, that they be not, first of all, high-minded. Riches have a way of puffing us up. If we're not careful, we'll take a look at ourselves and begin to admire ourselves and think what a a great uh, job we are doing in life, how successful we've been. He says, charge those who are rich in this world to be not high-minded, number one. And number two, not to trust in the unsearchable riches of this world, But in the living God, who richly giveth us all things, all things we stand in need of. Now notice here, it says, Trust not, be not high-minded, nor trust in the uncertain riches of this world. If there's one thing that's certain about the riches of this world, it's the uncertainty of them. That's the only thing certain about it, is how uncertain that they are. They can be here today and gone tomorrow. Now, a great example of that. Is found in Luke chapter 12. When the Lord warns his disciples against covetousness. Now, covetousness is commandment number 10. And I've said this oftentimes. Uh, you know, parents ought to teach their children the Ten Commandments. And I think when they do that, they usually start off and they say, Now, look, the Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. The Bible says, Thou shalt not kill. The Bible says, Thou shall not commit adultery. The Bible says, Thou uh, shalt not. Um, uh, you know, says, that Thou shalt not covet. That's the very last one. Now, how many times do parents forget to tell them about that one? You know, they're telling them about all the rest of them, the stealing and the killing and the, all the adultery and all these things, which they should. But he says, Also, the tenth and the last one, that's the very one that the rich young ruler, the Lord held aside when he was teaching the rich young ruler that great lesson, when he thought he had kept all the commandments. He said, Well, you lack one, He says, go and sell what thou hast and give to the poor and come and follow me. And the man went away very, very unhappy. He went because he had great riches, but he was not willing to separate himself from the riches because he was covetous and he was guilty of breaking commandment number 10. Here he says, beware of covetousness. He says, while the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, where thy treasure is, there your heart will be also. He said, there was this man And this is the 66-step plan, because there's 66 words listed here. The 66-word plan is the way I put it. This man will use the word I seven times, the word my two different times as he comes up with this plan. Now, he had a bump of crops, so to speak, and so he's got a problem. He says, what shall I do with all these goods? The barns aren't big enough to hold them all. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll just tear down the old barns. I'll build new barns. And then I'll bestow all my goods and everything, fruits and goods, in this barns, and I'll have them laid up for many years to come. Therefore, I say to my soul, eat, drink, and be merry. That was his attitude. We notice here he never spoke to the Lord once. He didn't pray. Didn't mention the Lord's name. Didn't mention the name of the poor or the category of the poor. He didn't mention anybody else. It was all about himself. It's self-centered right here. All about himself. What shall I do? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll solve the problem. If my old barns won't hold them, I'll just do away with the old barns. I'll build big barns and new barns. And then I'll have them to store all this here, and I can just lay back, eat, drink, and be merry for years to come. The Lord called him a fool. The Lord said, thou fool. He said, today is our life required of thee. He's not going to have many years. All that he stored up would be in vain. He said, then who shall all these things be that you're him behind? The man died. He didn't enjoy all that. Here's a man who trusted in his riches. His future was set. And it did last him as long as he lived in it. One day. <laughs> he, had, he had thoughts of years out in front of him. He, he had one day. So what good did they do? And the Lord said, you're a fool to think like that. You're a fool to plan like that. You never considered me. You never considered the, the, the poor. You never considered your, your family, your neighbors, anybody else. Trust not in uncertain riches. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5 says, Riches make themselves wings and fly away toward heaven. And you know what he's really saying there? The more you make, the more you spend. (laughs) The more you make, the more you spend. You wonder, you know, I used to make less and I had more. How does that work? (laughs) I used to make less, (laughs) had more, now make more to have less. That's that's the nature of man. So the Bible gives us warnings all the way through the scriptures. Don't put your trust in man. Don't put your trust in riches and wealth. Don't put your trust in yourself. Don't put your trust in anybody else. Don't put trust in your heart. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not upon thine own understanding but all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. I think of a little man by the name of Gideon one time. We come to Judges chapter 6 and you'll find where it starts off by saying Israel did evil the sight of the Lord again. That expression pops up over and over again in the book of Judges. And Israel did evil again. Israel did evil again. It was just a repeat, 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 like a record getting hung. After seven years, the Lord decided to send a deliverer. His name was Gideon. One day, Gideon was out threshing wheat by the wine press under the oak tree. Started out an ordinary day for Gideon. Oh, how his life was going to change. And the Lord sent an angel to him. And the Lord instructed him that God had called him to deliver his people after the bondage and oppression of the Midianites. Well, Gideon responded in really a good way from the standpoint he saw in his own self an insufficiency. He saw within his own self a weakness. He saw in his own self that he was not qualified for such a, for such a task as this. Well, of course, God never gives us a job that he doesn't supply the grace to get the job done with. Always remember that. God will never send you where his grace will not keep you. God will never give you a task. He'll never give you a job that he will not give the sufficiency of his grace for you to be able to do the job just like the Lord said for you to do it. Always remember that. Yes, in ourselves we're weak. That's why Paul said, when I'm weak, then am I strong. When you're strong, Paul, when you're weak. That seems to be a paradox, doesn't it? Well, it is, but both statements are true. You can't be strong in the Lord unless you see the weakness of your human nature, the weakness of your own self. So Gideon says, I, I'm the poorest in my family. My family is the poorest among all the tribes of Israel. Uh, you know, they're like, uh, how could I possibly do that? And the Lord was so kind to Gideon, so patient with Gideon. Uh, he allowed Gideon to, you know, ask him to show him several different things. It couldn't happen unless He was his hand, his miraculous hand was in it. And, of course, the most uh, well-known is the one about the fleece. And he says, Lord, he said, I'm going to put the fleece out on the ground. He says, now, uh, the, this night uh, let the fleece be wet with dew and the ground all around it dry. Now, have you ever went out one morning and there was dew and you looked all around and you thought, saw a dry spot here and a dry spot there, or was the dew everywhere? Right? Dews everywhere. So that night, the Lord did what Gideon asked. And the next morning, Gideon went out, and sure enough, that fleece was ringing wet with the dew from heaven. And it was dry all around the fleece. Well, then Gideon, he said, Lord, let's do this again and reverse it. <laughs> I'm going to put that fleece out again. And he says, this time let the fleece be dry and let the ground be wet all around. The Lord said, okay, Gideon, we didn't do that. So he put the fleece out. Next morning went out there. Fleece just dry as powder. But all around the fleece, all the ground, all the grass was just wet with water. Well now, Gideon, uh, his his uh, you know he's beginning to get the message, right? So the Lord tells Gideon, you go to chapter seven, he says, Gideon, he says, now you got thirty-two thousand men. He says, but there are too many. Now I have never heard uh, uh, of having too many people in an army. I've never heard where that was a problem except right here. He says, there's thirty-two thousand, but the problem is when I deliver you, you just say, look what we did. You'll you'll vaunt yourself up. The word vaunt means to be lifted up with pride. You'll claim credit for it. You'll claim a glory for it. So 32,000, just too many, says, uh, just ask everybody this question, who's afraid? And everybody says they're afraid. Just let them go back home. 22,000 said they were afraid. They went back home. We got 10,000 left. He said, well, there's still too many. Isn't it amazing how God knows us so well and we know ourselves so so little. He said, there's still too many. He said, I want you to go down to the brook and let every man drink water out of the brook. And those that lap water like a dog, you call out and you separate them out over here. And uh, those that drink water the other way over here. And there was 300 men that drank water like a dog, lapped up water like a dog. The Lord said, we'll take the 300. <laughs> we'll take the 300. Now, I, I want you to think about it. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Right now, I think it's a big test for Gideon. Is he going to trust in the Lord at this point with such a plan as this? Who ever heard of such a plan? Having too many people in the army. Who ever heard of that? Nobody. We reduced it to over 99%. And the Lord's going to take less than 1% of the original army and deliver Israel out of it. I'm I'm just seeing somebody here is putting his trust in the Lord, and I've said this before, and I'd say say it again. If I'd have been there in that day, I think I'd have said, "Gideon, are you positive you got the right plan? Uh, Are you positive this came from God and not from a dream you had last night?" I mean, we're down to three hundred. We was in captivity with thirty-two thousand. You plan on getting us out of bondage with three hundred men? And Gideon, I'm sure would say, "No, not me, but the Lord is." But the Lord is. To me, this is such an example of a man who put all his trust in the Lord, trust the Lord with all his heart. He had to, to try to implement a plan like this. And the Lord said, now I want you to put a, a trumpet in every man's hand. That's 300 trumpets. In the other hand, he says, you take a, a, a light and you take a vessel and you put the light in the vessel, you know, a lamp, a lamp in the vessel. It says, then you divide the 300 men into three companies of 100 men each. So that's what Gideon did. There's no hesitation. Uh, there is no deliberation about it. There's no discussion with his uh, uh, fellow men about it. Gideon just did what the Lord said. He took those 300 men. He gave them all the trumpet in one hand. And he gave them a vessel over here with a lamp in the other hand. And then he separated them around the camp in three groups of 100 people in each group. And the Bible says, every man stood round about the camp in his own place. I think that's a very significant saying. Every man stood round about the camp in his own place. You know, uh, if not deceived, I think I have a place here at Bethel Church. But also, you've got a place. Every single person, every single member has got a place here at Bethel Church. I don't care what your age is. I don't care if you're a brother or you're a sister or you're 80 years old, you're 8 years old. It doesn't matter. In this place, everybody has a place in the house of God, but it's important for us to stay in our place. <laughs> There's where the confusion exists. When people get out of place, and you can get out of place real easy, but you won't be out of place if you apply Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lead not your understanding. They're all around the camp. Every man's in his place. And the signal is this. says, when I say, uh, the sword of the Lord and Gideon, you're all to shout. Now, you know Gideon didn't even have a sword. (laughs) He didn't have a sword. But he says, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. He has the Lord's sword. And that's the Lord's word. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul tells us, put on the whole armor of God, and he says, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, have your loins girt about with truth, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And he says, have the shield of faith, quench the fiery darts of the wicked, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Gideon's got the word of God. Gideon's got God's word. He says, I'm going to deliver you. You're going to deliver Israel out from the bondage of the, of the Midianites, And he says, you're going to do it with 300 men, and they're not even going to have a sword. They're not going to have a spear. They're not going to have a bow. They're not going to have an arrow. All they're going to have is trumpets and a vessel with a lamp in it. Do You do have sound and light here, do we not? So he separates them all around the camp, and he shouts the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And when he does, they blow the trumpets. Now, it ain't but 300, but when 300 trumpets are blown at the same time, it can sound like 3,000, can't it? <laughs> and you know what the Bible says? It says, uh, the, all those, the enemy, he said, he said, every man, he said, every man uh, with his sword against his fellow. In other words, the enemy destroyed themselves. The enemy, all the enemy uh, soldiers, they, they slew themselves. Uh, man A slew man B. Slew man B, slew man C. (laughs) You know, it just, that's the way it went. And the entire army fell with trumpets and a light, a lamp within a vessel. Gideon carried the plan out to a T. He didn't try to adjust the plan. He didn't try to go to the Lord the second time saying, Lord, I want to just make sure about this. No, when Gideon had the evidence that God had called him and what he was going to do, Gideon carried out the plan to total perfection and the plan worked because it was God's plan, and because Gideon trusted the Lord, I believe, with all his heart. Now, think of another unusual plan that's found over here in the book of Joshua. Remember Joshua followed Moses. In the first chapter of Joshua, I think it's a very important chapter, because the Lord talks to Joshua, and he says, As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. He says, uh, Everywhere the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours to possess in the land of Canaan. He said, I'll go before you. I'll fight your battles for you. And he says, you are to be strong and courageous and be not dismayed. I think that expression is used about four times in Joshua chapter 1. Be not afraid, be of good courage, and be not dismayed, Joshua. Look not upon the enemy for multitude. Don't count his horses. Don't count his chariots. Don't count the soldiers. Because there's more with us than to be with them. Joshua had been around a long time. You know, why do you trust anybody? Why do you put your trust in anybody? If I'm going to put my trust in somebody, I want to know his honesty and his truthfulness, right? So maybe you know somebody and you can be there, an honest person, a truthful person, a dependable person, a responsible person. That's the kind of person I want to put my trust in. But you see, I also know he's still a person. I also know a person's a subject to failure also know that persons, people, no matter who it is, uh, they're people, they're human, they have a sinful nature. Uh, I even read about where uh, David, even though Solomon said, he that trusts his heart is a fool. You go to 1 Samuel chapter 27. As many times as God had delivered David out of, out of the hand of Saul and out of the hand of his own son Absalom, as many times as he delivered him when it looked just like the enemy was going to take his life, as many times he did that, there came a time in his life when he said in his heart, He said, the day will come that Saul will slay me. Therefore, it's a good thing for me to flee to the land of the Philistines, to the very land of the enemies that he had fought against so many times in his life. You know what he was doing there? He was trusting in his heart. He was trusting in his heart. In this aspect of his life right here, he, he behaved like a fool, just like Solomon said that he would. Joshua saw the miracles in the land of Egypt. Joshua had witnessed the manna coming down from on high in the wilderness, water coming out of the rock in the wilderness, and now they come and he is across Jordan's river. And the Lord tells him in Joshua here, he says, see, I have given thee the city and the king and all the men of valor I have given into thy hand. The Lord is telling Joshua the results of the battle before the battle is ever fought. Now, who can do that besides the Lord? Nobody. Before they engage in battle, God has given him the results of the battle. He says, now, here's what you're going to do, Joshua. He says, you're going to line them up just like this. He says, there's going to be the men of war. Behind the men of war is going to be seven uh, priests who's going to have seven trumpets made out of ram's horns. And then you're going to have the Ark of the Covenant. And then the balance of the people, the women and the children, will follow the last. That's the order they're going to go in. You know what Joshua did? He gave instructions to the people to line up just exactly like God said to it. There was no hesitation in it whatsoever. Who ever heard of a plan like this? Nobody. It's unique. It came from God. And so that's exactly what Joshua does. The men of war go first. The priest goes second. The Ark of the Covenant goes third. The palace of the people goes last. And the Lord said, now you go around this city one time a day for six days. On day number seven, you go around seven times and the people shall shout and the walls will fall down. The Lord tells him exactly how it's going to be. Joshua got them all lined up. They went around that city the first day, I don't think a thing happened. Second day, nothing happened. All the way through the sixth day, nothing happened. Seventh day, they go around six times, nothing's happened. But they go around the seventh time. There's four sevens in this battle plan. There's seven priests, there's seven trumpets, there's seven days. And there's seven trips around the city seven times on the seventh day. Four sevens in this plan. Seven is always the number of completion and perfection. They went around the seventh time on the seventh day. The priest blowed with the trumpets. The people shouted. And guess what happened? The walls fell flat. Now, there's one important thing I left out about this plan. The Lord said, during this seven-day thing here, he says, you're not to say a word. That was probably the biggest challenge of all. Don't you know the people inside the city, when they saw them, ridiculed them? Don't you know the people inside the city uh, just made fun of them? Look at this, just like they did when Nehemiah was going to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. The enemy said, oh, when they tried to rebuild the walls, why a fox would come up and put his paws on the wall and just push it down. You know they were ridiculing. You know they were criticizing them. You know they were making fun about them marching around that city. Jericho was the most fortified city in the land of Canaan. They go around that seventh time and shout. There's no more ridicule. They will go around that seventh time, the seventh day uh, and shout. There's no more confusion. There's no more making fun of them. There's no more criticism because those walls fell flat just like God said that they would. In my opinion, Joshua exemplified trusting in the Lord with all your heart. Let's go to the book of Ruth. Ruth has four chapters to it. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful books in all the Bible. And I want to just basically start in here in Ruth chapter 2. And in Ruth chapter 2, you will find that Ruth, who was a Moabite, has now traveled from the land of Moab back over here to the land of Bethlehem, Judah to be with Naomi. Now Naomi, her husband, left the land of Bethlehem, Judah, because of the famine. And I've seen God's people so many different times when things got going a little rough, when things got going kind of bad, they would depart uh, from following the Lord as they should. When is there ever a time that you become more committed, it's that time right there. And so they decided they would leave the land of Bethlehem Judah, which means a house of bread, and go to the land of Moab, which means that which is empty and fruitless and barren and unprofitable. So that's what they do. And when they get over there, they got two sons. Those sons marry two young ladies over there, Ruth and Ophrah. And then all three of the men die. Naomi's husband dies. The two sons die. At least three widow women and after they're there for a while, Naomi heard that God had visited the land of Bethlehem, Judah, and given them bread, decides to go back. Now, here's one of the most famous statements in the Bible. I'm sure when Ruth uttered this statement here, she had no idea how many times it'd be repeated, how many times it'd be quoted, how many times it'd be used in weddings. I mean, it's used oftentimes in weddings. Here's what she said in Ruth 1:16. She said unto Naomi, Entreat me not to... Leave thee nor to follow or to follow following after thee. For where thou goest, I'll go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy God should be my God. Where you live, I'll live, and where you die, I'll die, and there will I be buried. If that's not a statement of commitment, I don't know what is. Full commitment. Now, my question to you this morning is this about Ruth why would she make such a statement? Why would she have such a desire to leave the land of Moab and follow Naomi to the land of Bethlehem, Judah? She'd never been over there. Uh, I believe Naomi shared a lot of things with Ruth about the living God, the God of the, of the Jewish people. I'm satisfied about that. But even saying that, had not God worked a work in her heart, she would not have had the desire to follow Naomi and leave that land if God had not had a work of working, did a work of work, well, anyway, did a work in her heart, uh, uh, she would have not had this type of commitment within her soul to follow her back over to that land. You see, Naomi tried to discourage her and follow her to begin with, but she was not going to be denied. Now, Orpha did. She first of all said she'd go, but when to the discouragement, she turned around and left and went back, but not Ruth. Ruth says, I'm going with you over there. I'm telling you, this is a statement of faith. This is a statement that reflects the work of God in the heart of an individual in foreign territory. She's a Moabite. She's an alien. She's a widow woman. She's she's a stranger. And she's a poor widow woman on top of all of that. So Naomi gives in. And Naomi now has actually a bitter spirit about her. She says, call me not Naomi. You know, for you know, the Lord led me out. The Lord brought me back empty. Well, the Lord did not lead her out to begin with. It was her husband led her out over there. And chapter 2 opens up, and it opens up in verse 2 like this. It says that Ruth said, I'm going to go out today, and I'm going to go out and to find grace in the eyes of one in the glean in the field. She has a desire to find grace in the sight of a landowner. Well, there's a land known by the name of Boaz. The word Boaz means a man of wealth. It means a man of strength. It's a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turns out he's a near kinsman to her father-in-law, but she knows nothing about this. And the Bible says it just happened, H-A-P, which you read in the center of reference of your Bible, it means happened for her lot to fall into the field of Boaz. Now, the fields over there had boundary markers, but they didn't have signs. There's no sign saying this is Boaz's field. You ride down the road and you might see a, a farm on the right and there'll be a sign saying so-and-so's farm or or, what ranch or whatever it might be. That was not the case. She did not know Boaz, did not know whose field she was going to be gleaning in. The Bible says it hap, which means God's hand of his providence was upon her. I believe you're going to see the beginning right here of a little woman who put all her trust in the Lord. Who's trusting the Lord with all her heart. The Bible says her hap just to be it to be in the field of Boaz. Then Boaz comes on the scene. And Boaz speaks to, you might say, his foreman. And he speaks, he says, You know, God be with you, basically. he says the same thing about him. He said, Now, he sees this woman over here that he doesn't know, a stranger. He asks his foreman about it. He said, Well, this is a woman, the Moabite woman, that came with Naomi out of the land of Moab back over here. And she made a request to be able to glean in the field. And basically, I give her permission. And then the Lord stops his conversation. Boaz stops his conversation with him and turns his attention over here to Ruth. And he speaks unto Ruth. Ruth is beginning to find grace in the sight of the Lord. Now notice this, it's not Ruth speaking to Boaz, it's Boaz speaking to Ruth. Boaz takes the initiative. That's the way it is in the picture of grace. In the picture of grace, the Lord always takes the initiative. The Lord always speaks first. The Lord always takes the first step. In the theology of the free will system out here, they always tell the sinner to take the first step. If you'll take the first step, God will take the next step. The Bible says man by nature can't take any step. It's God who takes the initiative. It's God who takes the step. John 6:44. no man can come to me except the Father who sent me. Draw him. And we see here it's not Ruth speaking to Boaz. It's Boaz speaking to Ruth. And here's what he tells her. He says, Ruth, he says, do not glean in any other field. You just glean this field right here. He says, I've given my workers charge to protect you. They will not harm you. They will protect you. And you're to follow the maidens here where they're gleaning. The maidens will go and you're to follow these maidens here. And when you're thirsty, there'll be vessels for you to drink out of. And when you're hungry, there'll be food for you to eat thereof and there'll be a place of refreshment when you're weary and tired that you can find rest. Now, I want you to get this picture in your mind here this morning. Here's a little woman, a poor widow woman, an alien or stranger who has no rights whatsoever. She's the lowest rung on the social ladder over here. She's from out of, uh, out of the country, but now she's over here and she's finding grace in the sight of this man by the name of Boaz, just like we by nature are aliens to God. Now, one of the expressions we often use in preaching is a dead alien sinner. And I know a lot of people don't know what in the world we're talking about. I think they, try, they think we're talking about somebody from outer space. But I'm telling you word alien means, that you're from out of the country. Alien means you're a stranger. And this is what she is. She's an alien. She's a stranger. She's a woman and she's poor and she's a widow. She has no rights whatsoever, but she finds grace in the sight of Boaz. I'm looking at the faces of people here this morning who's found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You're looking at a person in the pulpit here this morning that God's been good to, God's been gracious to, and I have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, But God's grace found me first, just like the grace of Boaz finds Ruth over here when she's gleaning in his field. She wasn't there by an accident. She was there by the direct hand of God, His providence, brethren. She's in the right place at the right time. Now think about this. Let's suppose Boaz came early that morning and left before she got there. Suppose he came late in the afternoon and left before she got there. Before she came, what, what if she had gleaned everything, got what she was going to get, and she left before Boaz got there? They wouldn't have had a meeting, right? But you know what? None of that happened. <laughs> None of that happened. Are oh, you talking about perfect timing? you talking about being in the right place at the right time? I believe strongly in that, brother. I believe I've been in the right place at the right time many times along the journey of life and I give all the credit, praise, and glory to God for blessing me to be in such situations. So she's in the right place. Boaz is just not another wealthy landowner. He just so happens to be the near kinsman to her father-in-law, Elimelech. That's going to be very important when you study the book of Ruth. He says, don't worry. My man's going to take care of you and protect you. Don't worry, you'll be brought into the fold, so to speak, by my maidens. Where they go, you follow them. Where they glean, you glean where they glean. You don't glean in another field. When you're hungry, there'll be food for you to eat. When you're thirsty, be something to drink. And then after saying all this, this is the reply that Ruth gives unto him. She says, seeing I'm a stranger, why have I found grace in thy sight? Now that's the testimony of a born-again child of grace. That's a testimony of somebody who knows by nature they don't deserve one blessing that comes from God's hand. That's the testimony of an individual that God has shown in their hearts that they're unworthy, that they are a failure, that they're a bankrupt sinner, and yet God has taken notice of them and has brought them by His grace into His arms, into His bosom, and now they have a relationship with the true and living God. That's what it says a picture of. I want you to get the picture here this morning. I believe she's an example of somebody who's put her trust in the Lord with all of her heart. She's trusting now in the promises of Boaz. Why have I found grace in thy sight? He said, he has been shown me that you left the land of your nativity. You left your father. You left your mother. You left the land of your nativity. And you came to this land. Brother, you know where the greatest blessings of life come to God's people? When they're willing to leave some things in this world that has hindered them. When they're willing to leave things in this world that has stopped them and hindered them and separated them from the blessings of God. And when they see God's guiding hand, they're willing to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They're willing to separate themselves from the things that so uh, uh, shackle them and hinder them along life's pathway. And when they do, God's rich blessings come upon them. Boaz is sharing the riches, my friends, with this little young widow woman who's come from the land of Moab. When I read about the one that he's a type of, I'm thankful to tell you this morning that he shares his riches with you. The Lord Jesus Christ, according to Philippians chapter 2, became a servant in this world, took upon himself the likeness of men in the form of a servant, and he lived here for 33 and a half years. To save you from your sins, which he did. He secured your salvation on Calvary nearly 2,000 years ago. As a result, he's been sharing the riches of his glory with you ever since. Notice what Boaz, again, has shared. He shared his food, he shared his drink, he shared his protection, he shared his uh, uh, comfort, he shared his uh, words of encouragement. This little woman here in the land of Bethlehem, Judah. When I read in the book of Ephesians, I read in chapter one, verse seven, in whom we have redemption through his blood according to the riches of his grace. God has shared the riches of his grace with you and with me with all members of his elect family uh, here in this life. I come to Ephesians 2, four, and it says, but God who's rich in mercy wherewith his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead and trespassing sins, which is telling you, he loved you when you were unlovable. He did the miraculous, he did the amazing, When you are unlovable, God loves you anyway. That's a miracle. So, what's he done? He shared with us the riches of his grace, the riches of his, uh, the greatness of his mercy, and the riches uh, of his love. Philippians 4 19, but God should supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus, his riches in glory. Romans 11, verse 33. He said, oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. Uh, If you have just an inkling this morning of uh, understanding that salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end, from from first to last, that salvation is totally and completely of the Lord and by His grace, you have just an inkling of that. I'm telling you, God has shared that with you in the revelation of His grace. Everything you see Boaz bestowing upon Ruth is what Christ has bestowed upon us. And then he tells her, tells his, his reapers, he said, I want you to let some hands full of purpose drop for. You let some hands full on purpose drop for. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad according to God's word that God... From time to time, just purposes, let some just drop in your pathway. Blessings that you weren't expecting. Surprises from God. I like surprises most of the time. (laughs) But I've never been disappointed in a surprise from God. I've never been disappointed in something God showed me, gave me, revealed unto me. Never been disappointed yet. He's willing to share all these things with us. Now, Psalm says, "Trust in the Lord with all thine heart; lean not upon thine own understanding." Now, what? Whenever Ruth gleaned, she gleaned enough that day that would supply uh, two weeks. Uh, excuse me, two women for a week. She gathered enough for two two uh, women for a week, and that was just the first fruits of what she could expect down the road in the future and she was placing all her hopes upon Boaz, uh, that full Boaz would fulfill his promises, that Boaz would fulfill the requirements of the near kinsman, and for near kinsman fulfilled his requirements, here's three things he had to do. He had to be willing, and he had to be able, and he had to have the resources to do it with, and Jesus Christ did just that. Jesus Christ was willing, he was able, and he was qualified to get the job done. So when he came into this world, he came willingly, he came ably, and he came fully qualified to take care of the salvation of the children of God. Do I need to give you any other reasons this morning to put all your trust in the Lord, to trust in the Lord with all of your heart? Just look at your own experiences of life. You're here this morning, whether you're 9 or 90. we got people past 90 in the congregation here this morning. And we got young children, we got people of all ages in the congregation here this morning. As I tell you usually at the end of the service, I thank God for your attendance, but I thank you for your attention. And there's a difference between the two. So I'll just do that again. I'll thank God for your attendance. Without God, you wouldn't be here. And thank God this morning, it looked like everybody's paying attention. So I thank you for your attention.